From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Growing up, I thought salt belonged in a shaker at the table and nowhere else. I never added it to food or saw Maman add it to food. When my Aunt Ziba, who had a well-documented taste for salt, sprinkled it onto her saffron rice at the table each night, my brothers and I giggled. We thought it was the strangest, funniest thing in the world. What on earth, I wondered, can salt do for food? Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine, the podcast on stories behind cookbooks. I'm your host, Brian Hogan-Stewart. You just heard from Samin Nosrat, the award-winning author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, Mastering the Elements of Good Cooking. Now, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat is Samin's first cookbook, and it's a breakthrough. It took home the James Beard Award for Best General Cookbook. It took home the Julia Child First Book Award. And it took home the IACP's Best American Cookbook Award. Now, Samin herself is an incredible teacher, cook, and author. She's now a New York Times food columnist, and NPR called her the next Julia Child. It's been 18 years since Samin first stumbled into Alice Waters' renowned Berkeley, California restaurant Chez Panisse, and American kitchens, both home and professional alike, will be forever shaped by her insightful prose, expert lessons and techniques, and incredible vision. As we'll discuss, her book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, is the next in a line of hugely influential how-to-cook cookbooks. Think the joy of cooking and how to cook everything. And this one is built for modern cooks. Samin makes us a bold promise. She says, master these four elements, and anything you cook will be delicious. It's bold, but no doubt it's true. The book contains 100 recipes, but that's not where you'll start. Now, this is more than just a recipe collection. Samin takes you by her side, from her days as a novice cook to today, injecting science lessons, uh, techniques, and poignant narrative throughout, as she teaches you more than just how to cook but the why of what makes great cooking. And the book is loaded with 150 illustrations from the super talented Wendy McNaughton, from hand-drawn recipes to these mesmerizing infographics on flavor that I think are worth buying the book for alone. Now, Samin is our final guest for the first season of Salt and Spine, and what a great season it's been. We've sat down with 10 incredible authors to talk cookbooks, And we're taking a short break before we'll be back for a short summer season. You won't want to miss it. We have great authors like Gabby Dalkin of What's Gabby Cooking and Michael Harlan Turkle of Acid Trip. And then we'll be back with another full, super exciting fall season. I hope you'll tune in. Remember to subscribe to Salt and Spine on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. We were so glad to sit down with Samin at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk cookbooks. Hi, Samin. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. <laughs> and welcome back home. Welcome back to the Bay. I know you have been traveling like crazy. It's been insane. It's yeah. been nonstop. Yes. Non-stop. For like uh, a <laughs> year? It feels like I was doing my taxes, you know, last uh-huh. month and I was I went to go look at like the travel things and... um I realized since basically October of 2016, I've just been I've been gone at least two weeks a month, right. if not more. So, right, I'm just so tired. I'm yes. so happy to be home. <laughs> Hopefully, you get a lot of yeah, sleep totally. and can relax. Um, and just to give folks a, a sense of context for why you've been traveling so much, it, it all comes back to your first cookbook. Yes, Salt my only heat. first and only, <laughs> and, and amazing, and probably cookbook. last. <laughs> 
Well, uh, going out with a bang then if it yeah. is your last because it's it's a wonderful cookbook. So it's Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And for folks who haven't yet read it, let's give a little bit of context. You didn't go to culinary school. You didn't no. go to train to be a professional chef. But this is a, a theory of the four essential elements of cooking that you came up with while working at Chez Panisse in Berkeley. Exactly. So I was, uh, you know, just an... an curious eater uh-huh. <laughs> who yes. stumbled into the kitchen there and I um, really didn't know anything. And at that time, I guess just to sort of set a little bit of context, it was about 2000 when I started working there and they won for a series of years there, they were winning like the best restaurant in America for right. the magazine and stuff. It really was a generation of cooks there who had worked for worked in the kitchen there for 20 and or longer years, you yeah. know, 20 or more years. So I was sitting amongst, you know, greatness and those people knew everything and I knew nothing. Like they would send me to go get parsley and I'd come back with cilantro. Like right. <laughs> I didn't know anything. And so it was very overwhelming. Um, and the menu changes every single day. And sure. so over, over a course of about a year of just sort of always feeling like I didn't know what was going on, I started to see these patterns that they were really always paying attention to these four elements to salt, fat, acid, and heat. We were always tasting for salt. We were always very careful about what fat we chose for flavor and for, you know, the reason and how we were going to treat it to get what texture. Acid was this thing, like I had never really heard that word used around food before, but it was kind of this magical thing that brought everything to life. And heat, you know, is how we cook. And there was just a very um, intuitive way that people cooked without sort of relying too much on timers and minutes and temperature and precise degrees and stuff. And so it was really intense for me to you know, because all I knew about cooking before that was recipes mm-hmm. on pages and books that sure. are very specific. And so there was just sort of this disconnect between like what I knew when I'd go home and read cookbooks and then when I'd come to work and see the way that they cooked. And so eventually I saw, I was like at a light bulb moment and I was like, oh, salt, fat, acid, heat, these four things. I figured it out. If I can pay <laughs> attention to that, I can cook anything because sometimes they're making French food, sometimes Italian or even North African or sometimes even Persian food. I went to one of the chefs and I said, oh, I see this thing. I see salt, fat, acid, heat. And he was like, yeah, we all know that. <laughs> and I was like, how come none of you bothered to tell me? I've been here for, you know, over a year. And so I felt a little bit betrayed. And um, and then I just was like, oh, okay, like if no one explained this to me, no one's explained this to home cooks. And this, right. so it really became the system that I understood and organized all of my information that I learned into. And then it became how I taught other cooks. And then um, in the back of my mind, I always thought I'd write a book about that one day. Yeah. And and I'm not a professional chef either. And I love the simplicity of this. I mean, there's so many books that, you know, the 20 techniques, the 25 things you need to know, how to saute versus braise versus so many elements to just like really distill that down, I think is such a, a smart and astute thing that you just totally sort of stumbled on by trial and error, right? It totally. seems like. I mean, yeah, it was definitely that. And I have noticed just as a personality trait, I like to understand things. You know, I like to have the sort of fundamental understanding of something so that then I can organize myself within that, whatever it is. Sure. And so that definitely was true for me as a young cook and then as a teacher of other people. And then when I sat down to write, it became a whole other level of having to organize my thoughts. And right. yeah, that was really overwhelming because I, I, I'm insane and I feel like the need to be comprehensive and encyclopedic and, you know, use facts. <laughs> and so, um, and a lot of the time, you know, I, I just felt like I needed 
to go back and understand everything and organize everything so that then I could sit and distill and distill and distill. And that's part of why it took so long was there was just so much distilling that I did. Yeah. And, and how long did it take? When did you say this should be a book? Um, that happened probably around 2011 or 2012. I was working with the writer Michael Pollan, mm-hmm. and he was really the one who said that this should be the book that I should do. And I knew in that moment that it would be a really hard book to do because it was so all-encompassing. And I resisted it for a while. And he said, go teach the classes, write curricula for your classes, and use those curricula as the foundation for your book. So I did that because I and I saw how students responded to different things that I talked about or when they needed more, when I wasn't being clear enough. So that was almost like a period of research before I even really started writing the proposal. I sold the book in March of 2013. So I think I I probably started writing the proposal like December of 2011. So yeah, it was over a year that I worked on that. And, you know, like almost half time, like the rest of the time I was catering and doing whatever else I could do to make money. Right. And then I did this sort of, I like, went to an office Monday, Wednesday, Friday and worked on my proposal. Yeah. <laughs> and it was ugly. It was bad. <laughs> on a, at a very early point, I knew that this book couldn't be and shouldn't be photographed. And so um, I I knew and I that was really hard for me because mm-hmm. I love beautiful things mm-hmm. and I love beautiful imagery of food. And I have a lot of friends who are great food photographers who I knew that like I just wanted one of those books that sits on the coffee table. But this book and that and photography just don't make sense like ideologically and um at that time i was stalking this illustrator wendy mcnaughton and i knew by then that we had some friends in common actually the person i shared the office with was a good friend of hers and so i did this crazy um i wrote her this like insane email like begging her to work with me and then i drew at that time wendy was drawing a lot of venn diagrams as Mm -hmm. a part of her infographics and so i drew a venn diagram of like all the ways our lives intersected and all the people we knew in common and why she had to do the book and then we like sent her this venn diagram (laughs) that that charmed the socks off her (laughs) yes and so um yeah she didn't know what she was agreeing to but she agreed (laughs) (laughs) and how did you sort of evolve to get to there like did was that always part of the concept originally to have infographics of yes absolutely so to me a big part of how I understand things and certainly cooking is in this very systemic way and this and I love lists and information and connecting the dots. And even in the things that interest me now as like a writer and a cook, I want to trace the history of cilantro and how it ended up in all these equatorial countries. Like I just love connecting dots like that. So it was built into how I understood and taught cooking. I just didn't necessarily have the best way of um, knowing how to convey it. But I knew that she would. I knew that Wendy would. And that was a big, you know, I'm a big fan of Wendy's work. I think she's makes very beautiful things, but I also think she's a great critical thinker who makes very useful and thoughtful Mm. things. And she taught me and our designer, the two of them taught me a lot about good design. And, you know, I, I also love good design, but there was just a lot I didn't know yet. And so together, the three of us really went on an incredible journey of how to like tell stories visually, how to convey really useful information in a compact and powerful and fun and beautiful way. Sometimes, you know, there were stories, there were, there were sort of, especially in the second half of the book, 
So the book's divided in two parts. And the mm-hmm. first part is these four chapters that really delve deep into each of the four elements. And the second part is a little bit more like a traditional cookbook, a collection of recipes. Sure. But already it's a pretty big book. Like it's not a small book. So I knew that I couldn't write like 1,000 recipes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that I had to be careful in how I chose things and sort of just try and create a repertoire for people mm-hmm. and show how I think and how dots are connected and how when you know how to make one braise, you actually know how to make a hundred braises. Right. So there were some collections that I knew like, Oh, pasta, for example, I spent a lot of time of my cooking career, you know, making, I made pasta every day for almost 10 years. Like I understand pasta so deeply. I under, I like lived in Italy for two years. I'm so obsessive about the shapes and the sauces and like the percentages of flowers and things. And I just knew I couldn't go into that depth in this book. This wasn't the right place to go there. Right. So how could I convey to you that there is so much wrapped into pasta and by teaching you a handful of pastas show you that you actually know already you have a pathway to a hundred more. So I just sat down and I started making lists of pastas. And I was like, these are the shapes I know. These are the sauces I know. These are, I just made lists in all the different forms that I possibly could until I started to see patterns. And I saw this pattern and I realized, oh, there's basically five families of sauces. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, tomato-y, cheesy, fishy, meaty, and vegetable And sometimes they overlap and sometimes they're kind of separate. But if you know one from each family, all of a sudden you understand how to make all these other ones. And so I was like, okay, how can we convey this? in a chart and I knew because I was obsessed with Wendy and her work and her body of work I knew that she had made this great great chart years ago in collaboration with um, this writer cannot remember her name right now, but it was um, posted on Maria Popova's website, the brainpickings.com. And it's called the literary circles of influence. And it's this kind of tongue in cheek, amazing walk through history of showing how all these different thinkers and writers over time have influenced one another and how like Shakespeare and Mark Twain are related or like Daniel Handler and whoever else. So like, it's just a very funny and loving thing. And it was just these kind of like gentle arrows. And I was like, Oh, we could make the pasta circles of influence because it's the same idea. And so I like would sketch it out on a piece of computer paper and send it to her. And she was like, well, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. You need to change this and this. And then Uh she would, and then she would do it. And then there were other times where like the wheels where I knew I wanted those wheels. I wanted them as maps of the world. And she just said, that's insane. Like we cannot (laughs) convey that much information in that tiny of writing. You're crazy. That's not going to work. So you need to go home and like, distill this list and make it smaller and make it smaller and make it smaller. And then um, she was like, Oh, this is basically a flow chart is like, you know, the continents to the countries to the forms of fat or acid right. or whatever. But it's a flow chart with so many parts that if we fold it on itself, it becomes a wheel. Right. And so she has this extraordinary background in social work, which as I learned from her is really all about organizing information and creating hierarchies so that you know like what problems to address first. And right. that is really helpful in making infographics. Yeah, yeah. as it turns out, <laughs> they're yeah. beautiful and super useful. You mentioned recipes. So the book is divided into two sections. Am I right that you were hesitant a bit to include recipes oh, yeah. at all? If yeah. I had had it my way, uh-huh. <laughs> there would be no recipes because yeah. like I freaking hate them. But, um, and I hate right. Uh, it's like, I, I mean, the whole point of learning these four elements and how to use them is so that you can free, be free and feel like you're not constricted by the, the like parameters of a recipe. Mm-hmm. And I've seen so many people make food from a recipe and then it doesn't come out and they feel like it's their fault. And right. the truth is that a lot of the time it's not your fault. The recipe's not written correctly or it's not tested properly or 
you know, it's tested using an orange from Florida and you're making it with oranges from California or whatever. Like there's a million things. So if I could at least give you the tools so that you could course correct while you're following a recipe, then that, then that was really my goal. But, um, the cookbook industry is such that a cookbook will not sell without Mm. recipes. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, I taught those classes for almost three years straight, just over and over salt, fat, acid, heat, salt, fat, acid, heat. And like, I would teach the whole course. Like we'd have 40 hours of class together. I'd be like, guys, we'd make everything like totally just like walking through it. And then on the last day they'd be like, where's the recipe packet? And I'd be like, you guys. (laughs) So, I mean, I knew people wanted it and they needed it. And it's like a little bit of handholding, but then I felt a greater pressure to really deliver like solid ones that worked. And I mean, I I have made some of the recipes. It's like so hot today, but not that long ago we made the um, radicchio and roquefort. Um, Panzanella, Panzanella, which is amazing. Thank so we, we turn to you for guidance Thank with you. those recipes too, in addition to learning all your expertise <laughs> in Thank the beginning. You. What are you, you, you taught these classes for a long time on salt, fat, acid, heat. Obviously you've been on, on book tour and traveling all over talking to people. Is there one of the four elements that you think people like struggle with the most or is most surprising to a home cook? I think acid is yeah. like kind of the like curveball for most people where it's not necessarily, I wouldn't say they struggle with it, but I think it's the one that they, has not occurred to people, mm-hmm. to most people. You know, they're sure. like, salt, yeah, I've heard of that. Fat, okay, cool, heat, yeah, it's the stove. Acid, they're, and it also is the most clinical sounding one. It seems like the most sort of sciencey and scary, but it also is the one that a lot of the time, like I was over at a friend's house recently and she's a great cook and her mom's a great cook. They're of Italian descent. Like she grew up eating home cooked food. She has a great palate. And she was making some chicken pot pie or chicken and biscuit. What's it called? What's that thing called? Chicken and dumplings. Oh, chicken and dumplings. And and so I was like, oh, yeah. So I went in the kitchen and and she was like, I don't know what's wrong with this. Like, why is it so bad? And I was or just it's not right. Yeah. And she's like, it doesn't need more salt. And I was like, oh, yeah, it absolutely does not need more salt. Like it needs a little splash of white wine. Uh Like it needs some acid because it's so rich and so seasoned. You need something to create contrast. And and she was like, kaboom. And then after that, like every day she was like, I'm obsessed with acid. I'm obsessed <laughs> yeah. with adding vinegar to stuff. Like I was like, oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And one of I think one of the most memorable things in the cookbook for me at least was um, you talking about Thanksgiving oh, and yeah. how there's like no totally. acid on American Thanksgiving tables. It's really upsetting. Yeah, <laughs> that really clicked for me. Totally. I, I mean, it's why you're like always like putting cranberry sauce on everything. Uh-huh. You're like, what? And I mean, yeah, it's sweet and that's good, but like you just need some relief to your palate. So you note at the beginning that this isn't sort of your typical cookbook, which I think. Folks have probably established by now, um, but obviously it's it's a, a huge amount of work that went into this. What cookbooks or influences or cookbook authors did you turn to or pull from as you were putting this oh, together? You come to my office, <laughs> we'd love to next time. <laughs> um, well, definitely. So I went through. It took me a long. I'd written before. I'd been writing for papers and and magazines before I started this, uh-huh. but I had definitely not written anything so voicey and so big, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I had to pretend to be other people first. So first, um, my friend Tamar Adler, who uh-huh. I really look up to, I think she's a fantastic writer. And I fully wrote like an entire, you know, proposal, ba- like trying to be Tamar. And I didn't know that I was only afterward where I was like, this is not me. And then yeah. I put that down and then I wrote one as Michael Pollan. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I was like, that's not me either. And then I kind of, and I, to be honest, I'm still figuring out who I am. Like still my editors at the times are like, every time they're like, you know, you could be a little more relaxed. Like, I know you're not this stuffy. Why are you being so stuffy on the page? Right. So, um, 
but oh gosh so like i have i am obsessed with there's an entire sort of generation of these like british and american cooking ladies like jane grigson Mm -hmm. patience gray elizabeth david that i have like deep deep obsession with there's this book um the auberge of the flowering hearth by roy andries de groot that i love very much there's i had a lot of james beard i had a lot a lot of james beard like all different really weird ones that i just bought at like antique stores and the classic ones just because i i love his voice and his sensibility yeah um i mean because i tried to be like not comprehensive but really sort of have a global viewpoint there was a lot of looking around to people who had written books from different parts of the world. So um, actually we were just talking about Nancy Hachisu, but Uh like, I think her books are really great for, for learning about Japanese food. Oh, Paula Wolfert. Amazing. Like incredible. Claudia Rodin. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, God, I don't even David Tannis. I, you know, Mm -hmm. Suzanne Goen, that original Luke book, I think is just one of the greatest cookbooks of all time. It's just no fail. Like it's just a great book. And, and so even though I wasn't writing recipes, there was just something I really loved about that um i also love john mcphee like more Mm -hmm. than anything as a storyteller and at one point i was trying to figure out how to structure the book and someone told me to read the levels of the game which is like his book about tennis okay and it just has a really interesting structure so i read that and i was like maybe this is how i structure it there was just a lot of structural issues i had so i was constantly reading books with new structure i read a lot of nonfiction. um yeah but I don't know. I mean, I made a list in the yeah. back. I feel like I, yeah, there yeah. is a great list in the back. Um, like, did I missing anyone really important? <laughs> and you and you specifically note Tamar Adler. You note um, Julia Tertian as two people oh, yes. who yeah. you you worked with. Yes. Um, and then your list of references is yeah, Julia. I mean, t- to me, there are not that many people I know in my life who I- inhabit sort of this like um, liminal place that I do between cooking and writing. Most people who are my friends from cooking are still just cooks. You know, yeah. they, they exist very dramatically in the cooking world. <laughs> right. And then I have an incredible writing community, but they don't really understand me as, as a cook and my thinking as a cook. And the fact that like my identity is really both. I, I'm not just one. Yeah. And Tamar and Julia really are sort of two of the few people who I know can relate. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Samin Nostrat. Our conversation with Samin and all of our Salt and Spine guests was recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Just recently, the Salt and Spine team learned to make Chinese summer dumplings at the Civic Kitchen with our teacher, Lorraine Witt. We had a blast making pork and shrimp wontons, cilantro pesto, summer fruit dumplings, and more. Now, we love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, and welcoming space. It's perfect for learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles from their expert teachers. And personally, I love their wonderfully curated cookbook wall, which is the backdrop of all Salt and Spine episodes. Now, don't miss some upcoming classes on topics like Indonesian satay and Donuts 101. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. Now, back to our conversation with Samin Nosret. How did you balance that pull between being, you know, sort of a, a, a textbook of sorts and very scientific with incorporating more of your voice? It's not a super narrative heavy cookbook, but we do get a really great sense of you, your childhood, how sort of you evolved around food throughout the course of your life. How did you, was that a struggle to find that balance? No, because as I taught the classes, I really saw what worked for people. And yeah. I saw that what worked in teaching 
um, people the like sort of mind blowing light bulb moments was doing my best to like take my memory and my body back to the moments when I was a cook who didn't understand those things. And when I, and, and like I had my own light bulb moment mm-hmm. and, and explaining and telling the stories of sort of the like many mistakes I made on the way to like understanding these things. And I think that that f- fulfills several roles. I mean, it, it's a tool. Absolutely. And when I said like I was pretending to be Michael Pollan, one of the things that he does that he's so masterful at is taking these very complicated topics and entering, you know, them with curiosity on the ground floor, like as with total beginner's mind. And sure. so you as the reader go on this journey with him, whether it's like about gardening or architecture or food or now psychedelics or whatever, you go and you learn with him. He's not like lecturing you from above you. He's lecturing, right. you know, you're, you're on the journey with him. And so when I tried originally and I was like copying that and I was trying to take you on the journey with me, it didn't work because I needed to establish my authority as your teacher here. So I have to sort of go back and forth from the voice of like authority to, oh yeah, but I was once in that position. Right. And that was when I, I, I would sort of slip into that Michael tool of like really relating to you as, as that moment. Cause I remember, you know, like there are times, man, there was one week that I'll never forget at Chapinese where I worked three days in a row and all three days I ruined like massive amounts of food, like so expensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like the, like, you know, the rock in the pit of my stomach, the fear of like what I had done and how much I had ruined and how much money and time I had wasted. Yeah. Like I remember, I will never forget that. And so maybe that's magnified because it was a professional situation, not a home situation. I can only imagine like if you feel like your in-laws are coming over and you're ruining the roast or whatever, it's the same thing. And right. so I can relate to you. And because I feel like I can ha- find that empathy, like that will make, I, I will be in a better position you you know maybe you'll trust me more want to listen to me because i i i'm i'm like i was there too you right. know right yeah know? i think i definitely think so that is that when you ruined the sauce for hillary, for hillary clinton? clinton i definitely did that okay um, different different time yeah there have been like honestly like if i tallied up the amount of money i wasted <laughs> i just can't even believe that they like kept me let me keep yeah. coming back <laughs> well and now a glowing yeah. glowing endorsement from yeah. alice waters for your book too yeah. so yeah. it's all good in the yeah. end yeah. one other thing i just want to pull out from your cookbook there was a moment that really struck me um where you're talking about your grandmother and your grandfather and your grandmother your grandmother cooking for long hours over a stove and your grandfather sort of being responsible for like the quick Grilled grilling stuff. yeah mm-hmm. that happens fast and both so, obviously being delicious um but it made me think about some of the other comments and conversations you've had lately about the male dominated cooking industry and i'm just sort of curious like how your cookbook process of putting this together um, like, did you face challenges and obstacles because of the male-dominated industry? Um, you know, for the most part, I was pretty lucky and I didn't have too much of the sort of a very direct um, experience of harassment in yeah. the kitchen. I really did. I can't say that I ever really did. So that, like, that's not good. But um, the fact of the matter is, like, at some point, at one point, I was uh, probably 24 years old young brown woman, like not really ever fully trained to be a manager in charge of other cooks in charge of a kitchen of primarily white men who were mostly older than me. And so, and I didn't have the tools for that. I didn't, I was not a great leader and I really struggled to like command their respect and their attention. And, um, 
And that, you know, never, I, that fact never escaped me. I was always very aware of that. And it's also, to me, I, I came from a culinary bubble and I like went to a culinary bubble when I went from Chez Panisse to Italy, like to this like very female run mm-hmm. kitchen. Like I was in a tiny little place that was like a little family and they, I felt very taken care of. So I just, I didn't have too much of an experience in the broader world, but what I, when I looked out, and I was seeing, and you have to remember, this was like the early 2000s. It was still, you know, when I started cooking, people were confused why I was doing that. There was not the same sort of celebrity or cachet around being a cook or a chef. And any, and like at some point, like I remember when Kitchen Confidential came out, it really, the first time I read it, it was really upsetting to me because I was like, wow, this is so macho and so intense. This does not reflect my experience at all. It doesn't reflect like what I see or anybody who looks like me in this at all. And much later when I read it, I was like, oh, actually, this is. I'm really glad that this exists. It was for me, I I remember always being aware that I existed in a tiny little corner that was not representative of the larger world. And to be honest, even yesterday I was listening to a podcast, um, Racist Sandwich, Mm -hmm. and they were interviewing Francis Lamb, who's just like a great writer and editor and thinker. And he was saying, you know, for him that, he loves to tell the stories of the invisible people who get the food onto our plates. And it really like hit me. And I I was like, wow, like I don't think I count as ever having been one of those invisible people because there's just so much more out in the cooking world than what I experienced. And I'm aware of that. Like, but I also just, I remember at some point I went to a city arts and lectures probably in like 2008 and it was David Chang and I like fully raised my hand and stood up and I was like, how come you never talk about women? Like, you know, like (laughs) where are the women chefs that you're bringing along with you or whatever? I fully just, I mean, it was a thing that I always was aware of. I've always been piping up about it, but um, yeah. And it's problematic for some people, but (laughs) I'm not going to stop. Yeah. 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 It's a conversation (laughs) we've had a lot this season with Nigella Lawson and with others, particularly about, you know, cooking, predominantly being uh home cooking predominantly being women's work mm-hmm. and in you know more modern times being something that was viewed of as a man's profession and a man's role and having voices like yours like Nigella's and even voices you know like Edward Lee who we talked to who's done this great tour across America to bring to light some of the stories of the invisible people in kitchens as you know um are are just so crucial I think to fighting that sort of stereotype totally I mean I think I always say uh, um, I told this to Nigella too, actually. I always say if I had like another career, another lifetime, I would go do a PhD in gender dynamics in the kitchen. Because uh-huh. I think to me, like what is the most upsetting is, you know, for people, humans have been cooking for 10,000 years. So for 10,000 years, <laughs> it was women cooking the food. And then 200 years ago, restaurants came along. And the minute there was a glory and fame and attention and money attached to it, the kitchen became the men's realm. And so how is it that this is not the most obvious thing for people? You know, it's just, um, I don't know. I'm, I have a lot of anger inside of me, so I'm trying to control my words right now. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but there are just a lot of things where I, I feel, I feel like whatever small power that I'm given, I will use to sort of increase that representation and tell the stories. I mean, I've never yeah. even told this to my editors 
at the times, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this out loud in a podcast, but whatever, is like, <laughs> I'm like, somebody's going to come after me and it's fine. But like, uh, you know, like I sort of made a secret commitment to my own self that um, in my column, which is once a month, that I would only write about women, like yeah. for a year and see if anyone notices. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's not, I mean, it's been about a year, like, and half the stuff is my own personal story. So it's not even like I'm telling someone else. But I sort of just was like, I don't need to talk about like these. I mean, there's some really great male chefs who I like, whose food I adore. But I also feel like other people are telling that and I can work a little bit harder and find somebody who's not being written about, you know, someone whose story is not being told. And yeah, no one's noticed. Yeah. Yeah. No one's called me out on it. Like no one's, no one's getting mad at me at the editorial situation. So, <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. It's, um, or even in our show, you know, like the book's being turned into a show. Right. Not allowed to talk too much about it. But, um, <laughs> one thing that I was adam- adamant about throughout was like, there are enough shows that show men cooking. There are enough mm-hmm. shows in restaurants. There mm-hmm. are enough shows that glorify the professional cook. I want this show to be for and about home cooks. I want this show to like centralize women and, um, and the kind of people who never get credit or attention. So we did did our best. We did our best. Um, and next time I can do better. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that you, you mentioned this little secret pact you made with yourself in in writing of your columns. We made a public pact uh, on this podcast that we wouldn't feature any white men in our first episode or our our first episode, our first season. We only broke that once for Jacques Pepin, which I think is granted. Like, um, we we made that happen. Um, but I, I really appreciate you sharing that with (laughs) us and I'm glad that you're doing that in your New York times column. Yeah. Thank. I mean, I also feel like we, I could do probably better. Like I could probably do less white women i could probably do less like you know professional cooks like i can do better we can all do better but like we have to just start somewhere yeah yeah and if and if you're listening and you're looking for somewhere to start julia tertian has a wonderful resource called equity at the table Mm -hmm. um to find people uh who are not white men who can do whatever food related work you need them to do recipe testing photography all of it um, great. Well, uh, we're coming to a close, Samin. We really appreciate you being here. What else can we expect yeah, from you Yeah, so this, soon? we have been working on a documentary series based on the book that's okay. coming out at some point later this year. I don't know when, so don't ask. Okay, <laughs> I won't ask, <laughs> but we're, we're but ready it, and waiting. I promise <laughs> it will be on all the newses. Uh, <laughs> and um, so that, and, and we're, that's finally, like, the work on that's finally drawing to an end. So I'm actually just ready to take a break. I'm so ready to rest. I, I feel like this has been such an epic many year effort and I'm so proud of it. And I, I know that I can be proud of it because I sort of, I was very thoughtful about it every step of the way. And I would like to have the luxury of having the time to really come up with a clear creative idea of what I want to do next before I do that. And I feel like in this world, like where there's just so much pressure to like make stuff and put it out there and like, I don't know, I'm resisting it so hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I think I'm just gonna have to go to Tibet and hide or something. Yeah, yeah. it's hard. Well, I <laughs> yeah. think you get a bit of a pass because your yeah. book is so wonderful. Thank I have you. friends who have read this who, you know, said cooking was not something that came naturally to them. And they, they really did see the light after reading this book. That's so, amazing. Yeah, it's wonderful it to see really people like, saying that's that. That's the most incredible feedback is when people are like, I put more salt in the water. My children ate the green beans. And I was <laughs> right. like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so thank much, Samin. We really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Now we're headed over to San Francisco's Omnivore Books, where our friend Celia Sack joins us in our From the Vault segment. 
Hi, Celia. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well, thanks. So we just talked to Samin Nostrad about her first book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, and I'm hoping you have something to share with us from your vault today. Well, I wanted to talk about the sort of background of science, cooking science books. Okay. Um, and, you know, for the most part, if not for the all part, they've been by men. Sure. Um, I, it's That's not to denigrate them, but it's really nice to have a female voice in there because yeah. oftentimes we talk about men cooking from the head and women cooking from the heart. And it's really wonderful to have not just a female author, but female illustrator in Wendy McNaughton having right. illustrated Samin's book. Uh, I feel like they, with especially the recipes that they add, um, there's a lot more heart in there, uh, as well as a lot of head. I mean, uh, Samin, you know, comes from that school of, uh, Chez Panisse, So they really are thinking about food that warms the soul. Right. And, uh, I think her take on it is just beautiful because of that. And I'm excited that she added in the science of salt, fat, acid, and heat and why those work in your cooking. And once you have those under your belt, you can riff and do whatever you want, which is also sort of the school of Chez Panisse. Right. Yeah, I think that's so true. It's so it's such a great book with all of the scientific analysis and understanding, but she really does bring a lot of her personal story and narrative into it as well. Yes, it's really exciting. And it's it makes me so happy to see finally a woman's name on that shelf of food science books that I've got. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Celia. My pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. Head to our website, saltandspine.com, for exclusive content, including Samin Nosrat reading an excerpt from Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, featured recipes, and cookbook giveaways. If you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Our program was produced today by Allison Sullivan and myself. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks so much for listening to our first season. We'll be back soon with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 